Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Stuyvesant Town and its companion Peter Cooper Village were built by the insurance company Metropolitan Life as middle-income housing with a preference for veterans who had returned from World War II and were desperate in a housing-starved city to find decent homes for their families. In his new book, Saving Stuyvesant Town, How One Community Defeated the Worst Real Estate Deal in History, former city council member Daniel R. Gorodnik gives a first-hand account of the multi-year struggle to preserve the 11,232-unit, 80-acre complex. Mr. Gorodnik, who is currently the president and CEO of the Riverside Park Conservancy, joins us now to talk about his book, which is published by Three Hills. Welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Didn't you live in Stuyvesant Town uh, and even grow up there? Uh, that's correct. I uh, spent most of my life in uh, Peter Cooper Village. The first four years of my life were in uh, Stuyvesant Town in a two-bedroom apartment. And then my parents saw fit to move uptown. So they crossed 20th Street, the big divide between Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper Village, in search of air conditioning, which Stuytown did not have at the time. And we moved in 1976, and I spent most of the rest of my uh, days and most of my rest of my time growing up in Peter Cooper Village. So was location and uh, air conditioning the only difference between Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper Village? No. The other difference was that the apartments were a little bigger. Uh, the grounds were a little more spaced out. Um, you know, the, uh, you know the, the post-war humor in World War II was that uh, Peter Cooper was uh, for the, uh, the captains and the generals and that the <laughs> uh, uh, Stuyvesant Town was for the infantrymen. That, of course, was not true, but that is what some of, the, some of them joked back in the day. It really was a question of space. Peter Cooper has a little bit more space and the apartments in the two-bedroom apartments have an extra bathroom. But we're still talking about a, a fairly large area, 80 acres, uh, uh, located on, in the East 20s along the East River. That's right. It's it's an enormous amount of space. Uh, it starts at 14th Street and it goes up to 23rd Street. It borders mm. a, a variety of neighborhoods in Manhattan, including the East Village and Union Square neighborhood and Gramercy and Flatiron. Uh, it is it is so large that depending on where you are standing in the in the community, you orient to a, an entirely different part of Manhattan. And it's uh, it's it's quite a it's quite a, a location in that regard. Were you living there when MetLife decided in 2006 to sell the property to Tishman Spire and and uh, BlackRock? Uh, oh, for a record yes. $5.4 billion. Uh, most certainly was and not only uh, lived there, but was the city councilman representing the neighborhood at the time. Mm -hmm. In fact, I, uh, I had just been elected to the city council um, in November of the prior year. And, uh, you know, when when running for the city council, the issues in Stytown mostly tended toward the mundane disputes between landlord and tenant, uh, questions of, you know, uh, rent increases or capital improvement charges that were being put on rent bills, periodically brown water here and there. Nobody ever had any thought that MetLife, after 60 years of ownership, would uh, put the place on the market. But there we were, uh, in July of 2006, I'm now seven months into my first term in the in the council uh, and a resident of Peter Cooper Village, uh, and I learned uh, that MetLife was 
going to put the property up for sale. In fact, actually, I got a call from their lobbyist. Uh, and I, I, you know, I, he, he called me on my cell phone. I just uh, met him, I think, sometime within the past uh, you know, year or so. And he told me that MetLife was considering putting the asset up for sale or testing the market for Stytown. And I wasn't entirely sure what it meant, uh, but I was too new. I was too green as a public official to realize that lobbyists don't tend to call the local city councilman at the early stages of uh, their client's speculation. They, they call them when it is truly absolutely necessary. And that moment was right then because the news started to trickle out that MetLife was in fact planning to sell Stuyvesant Town. For a lot of money, $5.4 billion. Uh, most of it borrowed, I, I understand. Real estate reporter Charles Bagley wrote a book about the deal called Other People's Money. That's right. The $5.4 billion price tag was uh, an extraordinary sum. It was higher by billions of dollars than what had been anticipated by experts only months earlier. Um, and Tishman Spire and BlackRock had been coaxed into an opportunity by MetLife, uh, which had been looking to unload some of its real estate assets, uh, into an opportunity to transform this middle-class community, which had been very stable. Uh, most units were covered by rent stabilization, which meant that the rents could not go up by more than a certain amount every year, into an oppor opportunity to transform it into a luxury enclave, a what they said was a market rate master community in their uh, uh, in their offering documents. Um, and in fact, Tishman Spire and BlackRock, they said, wow, you know, this looks like a great opportunity. They paid $5.4 billion in this auction where the real estate world could, could only uh, practically be described as having gone totally bonkers. Uh, they bid $5.4 billion and borrowed $4.4 billion of their purchase price, uh, which, yeah, when talking about other people's money, that is a lot of other people's money. Uh, and uh, they knew that the rent that was currently being generated in Stytown, it didn't support their debt payments. Uh, and for them, that meant that they needed to find ways to raise revenue, to generate more income out of Stuyvesant Town. And the only way to do that is to raise rents. Uh, well, let's, yeah. let's go back a bit in time to understand why this is so problematic. Uh, when it was opened in 1947, wasn't it the largest enclave of middle-class renters in the city, but built in partnership with the city, Mayor LaGuardia playing a role in all of that? Yes, it was then and it is now uh, still uh, that characteristic. It's the largest uh, rental community in the United States of America. And when it was built back in the 1940s, it was done through a partnership with the city and state. Robert Moses was an important uh, player in its creation. Um, that's always problematic. That Well, that's going to raise some <laughs> questions for sure. And what happened was... Uh, you know, after the First World War, there had been efforts to try to entice the more development of housing in New York City. Uh, the state law created certain incentives which were attractive uh, to corporations like MetLife to build housing. MetLife had, uh, had worked with Robert Moses to build Park Chester up in the Bronx. Uh, and Robert Moses had seen an opportunity or he had set his eyes on opportunity to do a large scale housing development 
in Manhattan. Of course, Manhattan was much more dense at the time, uh, and there were not that many places that would be suitable for such a development. But he saw this site on the east side of Manhattan, which was uh, an area was it was uh, you know he regarded it as a as an urban as urban blight or a slum. Uh, it was called a gas house district because they were manufacturing gas there, right in the midst of where you know eleven thousand people lived uh, in mostly uh, tenement style buildings. Um, and Robert Moses went to MetLife and he said, "Here, here's the place. This is the place for us to do this next development." Worked out the terms of a deal precisely to MetLife specifications with the New York State Legislature. Uh, and came out with a contract that allowed for MetLife to build on this site. It also, and, and, uh, yeah. And leave a lot of people homeless uh, to displace a lot of people. But yes. it received but it received considerable subsidies from the city uh, on the condition that it would keep rents low. That's correct. Uh, not only did the city condemn the land and allow for the displacement of those 11,000 mostly poor immigrants, uh, but it gave MetLife a guaranteed return on its investment of 6%. Uh, it froze the property taxes at the rate that they were when it was considered blighted. Uh, and of course, MetLife uh, went ahead and, and on the terms of that deal, built Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper Village with an obligation to keep it in that context with rents capped at a fixed level, only to go up if approved by the New York City's Board of Estimate for 25 years. So there was a deal struck between the city uh, and MetLife to protect Stuytown for a 25 year period. And, um, and, and that was how Stuyvesant Town was born and it was very, very popular when it first opened. There was high demand for housing at the time and the waiting lists filled up almost immediately. But uh, didn't MetLife have some other serious issues from the start? Although it built the complexes housing the middle-class families with a preference given to World War II veterans, didn't it bar African-Americans from living at the property for years, whether they were veterans or not? It certainly did. Uh, and that was one of the, it was the most controversial element mm -hmm. of the MetLife plan and the Robert Moses plan, which was the fact that MetLife was pretty explicit even before the city gave its approval that they were not going to include uh, black veterans in their midst. Frederick uh, that, H. Ecker, then the chairman of MetLife Insurance said, Negroes and whites don't mix. But was that legal in New York City at the time? It was. And what was interesting about that moment, when you think about this in the in the lens of 2021, or even in the 1960s or 70s, was it predated a lot of the anti-discrimination in housing laws. So a private owner uh, operating here was allowed to choose their own residence. Um, and even a private owner whose entire uh, existence was enabled through public sources was still allowed at the time to choose its own residence. And, and what happened was uh, a, a battle. A ba battle lines were immediately drawn between uh, you know, not only you know, you know, African-American veterans who had been denied uh, residency who sued, uh, but also the new residents of Stuyvesant Town who viewed this as uh, antithetical to uh, their own principles. And they wanted to fight back and push MetLife to change 
this racist policy. And uh, what finally happened uh, after? How was it challenged and, and uh, how was it resolved? What happened was the lawsuit was not successful, although it went all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, but the, the residents ended up mounting a campaign to try to uh, push MetLife to, um, to integrate the community. Uh, and they did it in very interesting uh, you know, ways of uh, civil disobedience. What, one of the things that residents did was they invited um, you know, uh, black neighbors uh, to come live in Stuyvesant Town with them. So they invited them as house guests and they said, you know, listen, I'm gonna be away for the summer. You come and stay in my apartment. Uh, and they formed a committee to integrate uh, Stuyvesant Town and to uh, and people on an increasing basis would invite, um, you know, invite black people to come and stay with them in their apartments while they were out or even while they were there, uh, creating a real headache for MetLife, which had to both explain uh, their racist policies while also seeing what was happening in their midst as a as an effort to the MetLife tried to evict the most uh, active integrators of the community. Uh, and it became a citywide cause to protect the people who were trying to save uh, and integrate Stuyvesant Town and to protect against uh, the, the racist uh, rental policies. And the end result was the city council passed a law which said, you can't do this. You can't do this uh, in housing, which is um, getting the support of the city of New York um, you can't do this even if you are a private owner. And so the city passed one of the early housing uh, anti-discrimination laws in 1952. Uh, and it set the stage for some of the laws which ended up coming at the federal level uh, about a decade later. How different is the, the uh, are the buildings from NYCHA buildings? You know, in structure, they're not that different. Um, the size of the apartments are bigger, um, but the biggest difference between uh, Stuyvesant Town, Peter Cooper Village, and the NYCHA buildings is the care uh, which is given to their upkeep. In Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper, this certainly has been the case while, for all the years while MetLife was the owner, uh, they viewed it as you know, an important asset, one that needed to be cared for and protected. They wanted to make sure that residents could, uh, you know, had a certain uh, style of life that would be respectful of the neighborhood. They went through great pains to keep the property up and to allow it to be, uh, you know, very well tended to where people would have their maintenance issues addressed promptly. It was a source of pride for MetLife. Um, contrast that with uh, with NYCHA, where maintenance is frequently a problem. You have you know vast bureaucracies uh, and underfunding, which keeps uh, elevators from getting repaired or basic issues from getting resolved. Um, and so the question of care is one which I think is the biggest distinguishing factor in care over a long period of time, uh, which distinguishes uh, those uh, th those housing developments. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Daniel R. Gorodnik, who's written a book called Saving Stuyvesant Town, How One Community Defeated the Worst Real Estate Deal in History. Uh, so we have this relatively, relatively unfancy middle-class housing project 
deemed to be worth nearly five and a half billion dollars. But since it was built in partnership with the city, what response did then Mayor Michael Bloomberg have to the deal? Mayor Bloomberg viewed this deal as a as a private matter. Um, and he was technically even, even though it was built with the city and there were state laws involved as well. Yes, that is right. And technically speaking, he was correct in that MetLife did not have any ongoing obligation to the city, nor did they have any more guaranteed returns or property tax uh, benefits that were you know, defined by the contract or thereafter. But I, I disagreed with his perspective because you know, the, the history of the community is one in which it was entirely enabled through public sources. Uh, there was a strong public-private partnership at play to create Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper Village. Um, and, you know, when you're dealing with the homes of 30,000 New Yorkers all at once, you lose some of your private character. Uh, and so it was, um, it was something which was a, uh, a, you know, a disagreement between me uh, and the mayor and the tenants um, and, uh, you know, we were, we were disappointed. How soon after the sale was announced did Tishman Spire reveal how it planned to repay the money? Didn't they hang banners offering luxury rentals, which would have gone against the whole premise of Stuyvesant Town? Well, it was almost immediate that we started seeing uh, changes in the neighborhood. Um, you know, it, when you borrow that amount of money and the rent roll does not support your debt payments, you know something bad is going to happen. Uh, and, you know, it was a combination of um, Tishman Spire trying to attract a more affluent tenant by, you know, hanging luxury rentals off of the sides of the nondescript red brick buildings as if that changed their character. Uh, and, you know, doing plantings all around the neighborhood, which I joked with neighbors was an effort to try to, uh, you know, to actually hide the buildings so you wouldn't actually, uh, you know, um, you know, see them. Uh, and, uh, you know, and they, they, they tried to create amenities they tried to invite, they, they, they held rock concerts in the middle of Stuyvesant Oval, but all of those things paled in comparison to the big thing that they did and needed to do as a result of the deal that they, uh, that they struck, which was create vacancies. They so needed- how soon afterward did your city council office start to get calls from tenants who were concerned that Tishman Spire was trying to force them out? It was it was weeks. Uh, I mean, it was within six to eight weeks we started hearing from residents that they were getting notices from Tishman Spire saying that uh, they did not properly live in their apartment uh, and that they uh, were going to be evicted on that basis. Um, they were living elsewhere. They claimed. Was there anything else that they could? No, that was the that was the number one issue that we saw. And I think what had happened in the course of the sale was that MetLife had said to Tishman Spire, listen, we've been a sleepy institutional operator here for a very long time. We've not gone after all of those, uh, all of those tenants who are 
uh, using their uh, their their property, their you know uh, their apartments as pied-à-terres. They actually live elsewhere. Um, so we are you know we are encouraging you to go and uh, you know shake it up. You have an opportunity to shake it up. And so the claim that was the predominant claim here was you don't live in your apartment and therefore you are not entitled to the protections of rent stabilization and you therefore have to leave your apartment. And of course, if MetLife uh, or Tishman Spire now were able to get a vacancy, the state law allowed them to take that apartment out of rent stabilization and to start investing some money into the unit and to rent it for whatever the market would bear. So you could see an apartment that was $1,500 or $1,000 then being rented for a $3,000 or $3,500 or $4,000. So there was a very strong incentive for them to create that vacancy uh, to raise revenue and to pay off those massive debts of other people's money. Well, I said there were also a strong incentive for you as the, the councilman representing the area to suggest new legislation? Yes. Unfortunately, under New York state law, the ability for New York City to go ahead and uh, enact stronger rent protections uh, for people who are covered by rent stabilization was limited to, uh, to what the state would allow. And the state's ERSTAT law allowed the city to weaken the laws but not strengthen them. Uh, so vacancy decontrol was present. It was there. It was an opportunity uh, for a, an owner to go ahead and do those sorts of things that would allow them to create the vacancy. And that law, of course, you know, was one which came and went in New York State for many years. It was, you know, it was enabled in the early 1970s, and then it was reversed. And then it came back in the early 1990s, and it stuck around through this Stytown saga and was just reversed again in 2019. So vacancy decontrol as a matter of state law has been sort of that zombie which keeps coming back from the dead uh, and was very much present here, but was outside of the realm of New York City uh, to reverse. So wasn't its identity as housing for people of modest means continually in question over the years, particularly after those changes to rent regulation rules in the 1990s, which made it easier to remove units from rent stabilization? Well, that's right. I mean, what happened was uh, through efforts to uh, deregulate the uh, units in Stuyvesant Town, uh, you would have a percentage of the community renting for the market rate. In fact, when Tishman Spire took over, MetLife had already taken 25% of the neighborhood out of rent stabilization. So 25% of the, the community was always rent, already renting at the market rate. And Tishman Spire saw an opportunity to go the rest of the distance. And as you do that, of course, you're renting apartments for higher rates. You're renting the people who can afford those higher rates. Um, in, in some cases, it's individuals who just happen to, to be more affluent or to have a higher income. In other cases, you're, you're renting it to multiple uh, you know, young professionals or graduate students who are pooling together their resources to be able to afford that higher rent apartment. Both of those things significantly change the character of this otherwise very stable and middle-class community. We can't name all of the people who played important roles in deciding the fate of the development over the years, which included some of the city's biggest real estate players, 
two mayors and their top officials and a group of tenant activists who pushed to keep the property within reach for people of modest incomes. But do you care to name any of the most important ones? Uh, well, tenant activists, uh, the t people of the Tenants Association, or the villains of the piece as you see it? Absolutely. Well, listen, you know, I had the, the pleasure of working with a tenants association that was uh, well organized. They were committed, they were nimble, uh, and they were able to find ways uh, to organize the community and also to find ways to be uh, recognized in the private sector, in the real estate world as viable partners here. Um, and people like Al Doyle, who was the president of the Tenants Association, Susan Steinberg and uh, uh, John Marsh, who would you know, be on his rollerblades around the community uh, with flyers that he would drop off to building captains uh, to, to distribute around their buildings. There's 110 buildings in Stytown. So if you want to communicate with people, you better have a, uh, a good uh, level of organization. And of course, uh, some of this, uh, the organizing in Stytown, most of it predated email even. So it was even more important that you had real infrastructure and the ability to talk to people under their doors. Um, so there were, some, there were some great, great activists in the neighborhood. Um, you know, the, there were a lot of villains here, <laughs> uh, which, uh, you know, if you read, if you read the book, um, you know, you will see that there were, uh, real estate players who did not necessarily have the best interests of Stuyvesant Town residents in mind, uh, when they came, uh, to look at the property in 2006 and, uh, and again, perhaps when Tishman Spire defaulted in 2010, uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we worked, the Tenants Association and I worked very closely with uh, the, a special servicer called CW Capital, which represented the lenders um, in the Tishman Spire deal. And they had, you know, they were both a villain and a hero in the story because they both were very resistant to our, our efforts to, uh, to try to preempt the outcome but at the end of the day, helped us negotiate quite a, an important deal uh, to protect units in Stuyvesant Town in 2015. You've said, I'm quoting, this is the story of a committed group of residents coming together against big real estate to preserve a middle-class community, and, and that you think this story serves as a blueprint for other communities on the brink. How often do things like this happen? <laughs> well, <laughs> in the size and scale of Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper Village, really not ever. But on a much smaller scale, they happen all the time. And the reason I say that is because with every other affordable housing deal that the city strikes or any benefit that a developer gets uh, to build something and to preserve something, there, when there's a regulatory agreement that is associated with that deal, uh, it usually has a time horizon, which means that there's a tax benefit in play or there is a, uh, you know, a, an agreement to protect units for a certain period of time or something that has an end date or expiration, um, which means that any community that is sort of on the brink or any building that sees themselves with a tax abatement expiring or a regulatory agreement coming due, that you know, there's reason to look at the story of Stuyvesant Town and think about 
how a group of tenants, which truly had no leverage when this process started, were ultimately seen by the real estate world as, uh, you know, we should really partner with these folks. It will add value to us. It will help us uh, protect the interests of this community in the long run. You know, what the amazing part of this story is that, you know, the lenders in the Tishman Spire deal had no obligation to strike a deal with us. The city had no rights to force a deal. The tenants and I, we certainly uh, had no rights to demand, well, we had plenty of rights to demand, but no rights to actually insist upon a particular outcome out of the lenders of this deal. Um, but what we built over time was leverage. The deck was definitely stacked against us for years, but through you know, grit and determination, back in 2006, we didn't even discuss this yet, the tenants put together a bid to try to buy Stuyvesant Town, right? So Tishman Spire ended up winning the bid from MetLife, but the tenants put together a bid of four and a half billion dollars to try to buy the community, buy the property, and give people an opportunity to own their units. Fast forward, you know, to Tishman Spire's, uh, you know, efforts to extract people from their apartments. The tenants sued and won the biggest tenant victory in a generation in the Roberts versus Tishman Spire lawsuit, which established that any efforts to take rent-stabilized tenants out of their apartments while the owner was receiving the J-51 tax abatement was totally illegal. Then we spent years trying yeah, to But But find... wait, wait, let's talk about that case. Ahead, yep. the, settlement, the settlement in that case promised to reimburse tenants for more than $68 million in overpaid rents, but didn't it also stipulate that rents could be raised for some tenants who were paying less than what the property owners could legally charge? Yes, that's correct. And so what happened in that lawsuit So it was a, a mixed result. Well, um, I wouldn't call it mixed. The reason why rent was going up for some, some tenants was that rent had come down uh, for some residents as part of an interim agreement in the lawsuit. Um, so, you know, when we, when we filed the lawsuit, the, the legality of the matter was established. The question of damages was much more complicated because each individual unit had its own profile. Some units had been that had five, six vacancies in them. Some of them had never been vacant. So for every apartment, there was a different legal rent that had to be established, which made this an incredibly complicated negotiation for the lawyers on both sides. Uh, but the end result was that every unit in Stuyvesant Town, including the ones that had been deregulated, were re-regulated again, all covered by the rent stabilization laws in New York City and state. Uh, and for many of the residents, they actually got a check uh, for all residents. They got rent stabilization to be, uh, you know, something that covered their unit. Um, and to the extent that there were residents who had rents go up, it was because they had their rents previously come down as a result of an interim agreement between the parties. Although a few were forced to leave. Uh, you're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Stop. 
we're back with Daniel R. Gorodnik, who served for 12 years as a city council member from the east side of Manhattan. He's also uh, worked as a civil rights attorney, and he's currently president and CEO of Riverside Park Conservancy, which is a nonprofit organization that advocates for the Six Mile Park along Manhattan's west side. <laughs> so he's moved from the east side to the west side. His, uh, his book is called Saving Stuyvesant Town, How... Uh, one community defeated the worst real estate deal in history. Um, so uh, let's, uh, uh, when the financial crisis hit in 2008, uh, didn't Tishman Spire and BlackRock's plan to extract big revenue increases collapse with the company defaulting and losing control of the property to creditors? Did, did that leave the property in limbo for years? So it did. Uh, and it was a real concern for residents at the time because we saw the, you know, we saw the ship sinking in real time because Tishman Spire had come out with a business plan that was simply not achievable. And they had set aside a certain amount of money to pay for their debt service. And we saw that amount getting chipped away month after month after month as they were not able to uh, turn apartments over to the market rate as quickly as they thought they would. Then, of course, there was this lawsuit, which completely killed their business plan. Uh, but they were doing a pretty good job of it themselves in not in not succeeding. And when they hurtled toward a default in January of 2010, there was a lot of uncertainty in the neighborhood as to what would happen. Uh, we were concerned as residents about uh, basic maintenance and whether the property would go into a bankruptcy or a, or a foreclosure. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we worried that all of our efforts to try to uh, defeat Tishman Spire and their aggressive business plan would, uh, would mean uh, that we had created something that was going to be even worse. And that was a big, big worry for us at the time. Um, but what happened was a number of years of uncertainty, as you described, uh, but uncertainty uh, where the lenders in that deal took over. And what happened in this situation was lenders in a deal where the whole premise is you need to get rents up is that there's very little interest in trying to let the property fall apart. And that is one of the distinguishing factors between Stytown and what you have seen in other uh, sort of predatory equity deals around the city where somebody invests money, they run it into the ground and they leave. That is not, was not what was at play here. They needed to create a luxury product in order to succeed. So CW Capital stepped in, an, a, a, an organization that nobody in the community had ever heard of. It's a special servicer. They tend to be the sort of entity that just uh, is like a robotic auctioneer. They take it from one owner and they move it to the next. Uh, bondholders? For the bondholders, representing the bondholders, which was a $3 billion um, first mortgage in Stuyvesant Town. Uh, it included Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and, uh, you know, the, you know, lots of pension funds. Um, and, you know, it was, uh, you know, they had a responsibility to try to get those, uh, th those debts paid back and to steward the property to a, a more stable outcome. They were doing it, of course, in the context of a very agitated tenant group. Uh, we were getting much more frustrated. We were determined to try to not allow for Tishman Spire, the sequel, 
to take place on our watch. Uh, we hired bankers and lawyers to represent us so that we could be viable uh, to the real estate world and to uh, CW Capital and its lenders. Uh, we did our very best to organize the 30,000 people in Stytown and Peter Cooper uh, to keep them focused on our efforts to try to create a positive outcome. Uh, and, you know, there, there were significant challenges for CW Capital in those days. But most importantly, they still had rents coming in. Uh, the rents were paying the, the price of the first mortgage, even though they weren't paying the price of the entire cost of uh, the, the 2006 deal. So they had the ability to sit, wait, watch, try to resolve issues and to think about the best moment to find a resolution uh, for their clients. They uh, challenged about 870 rent stabilized leases. Were they able to do that by the current law? So Tishman Spire did challenge uh, those leases. A lot of them were found to be, you know, not proper challenges. Uh, they, uh, you know, we found, we funded legal clinics through the city budget to help uh, residents defend themselves. And it was one of the reasons why Tishman Spire's business plan failed was that they, they could not be successful to the extent that they wanted to, uh, to get rent stabilized tenants out of their apartments. Uh, and then by the time that CW Capital came in, we had won the Roberts versus Tishman Spire lawsuit, which meant that all units were rent stabilized. So there was much less of an incentive to try to get an apartment vacant, which was the key for rent stabilization. If you have no, if you have no uh, opportunity with a vacancy, you're, you're just as well to keep a rent stabilized tenant in place, maybe even better off to keep them in place than to create a couple of months of vacancy before you replace them with another rent stabilized tenant. Uh, so we, we were pushing our issues with this auctioneer, this CW Capital, uh, to try to demand a better result for tenants whenever they chose to put the property back up for sale. What happened to the complex when Hurricane Sandy hit in 2011? That was a mess. That was a mess. So here you had uh, a neighborhood that is right on the, the banks of the East River, but it under past rules was not considered in a flood zone for whatever reason. So when Hurricane Sandy was coming to the East Coast, uh, the residents of Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper Village were told to stay put. And as you might imagine, uh, over many years, you have lots and lots of senior citizens in these buildings. Uh, and the estimates on what was and was not a flood zone turned out to be dramatically wrong. Uh, and the entire neighborhood was, uh, you know, without power for a couple of weeks. Uh, uh, many buildings were, their basements were entirely filled with water, destroyed. Uh, basements, of course, are the place where you have laundry machines, your electrical systems, your, uh, you know, your, your garbage disposal and pickup. Uh, so it was a disaster area over there. And, you know, we ran a, a door knocking operation, uh, which went, you know, we had the support of uh, New York Cares and we had support of the new landlord, CW Capital, which had just taken over. And I think they were a little overwhelmed by the situation too, and grateful to have uh, some volunteer support. We knocked on doors every single day. We found senior citizens 
who were present needed prescriptions filled, needed food, uh, and you know it was uh, it was a mess. And when the when the lights came back on and the heat came back on, the mess continued for months because there were a lot of buildings that had basic services that were no longer available to them. They had to pump out basements. Everything was completely destroyed. Uh, you know, buildings had their garbage sitting right in front of the front door. It was very unsightly. Uh, and, uh, you know, it created another battle between the tenants and CW Capital, where we felt that they should reduce rents for the amount of uh, services that had been lost during that time. And they felt that uh, services lost were limited to the amount of time in which power and heat were out. So it, it prompted yet, yet another battle, a sub battle within Stuyvesant Town related to Hurricane Sandy, ultimately settled uh, through a uh, rent reduction for many of the residents in the community. Although they also face the expenses of, of fixing up the place. Totally, or their insurance did, but yes. So th then Blackstone comes into this story. Uh, well, first of all, uh, let me tell people that they're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Daniel R. Grodnick, who has written a book called Saving Stuyvesant Town, How One Community Defeated the Worst Real Estate Deal in History. It is published by Three Hills Books. Okay, so... The, then there was the sale of the complex to the investment firm Blackstone in 2015, which included an agreement with the de Blasio administration to preserve 5,000 apartments at the property for people with modest incomes for a period of 20 years. So was that a victory for the tenants? Definitely was. Uh, and let me tell you why. Um, first of all, we had spent uh, about five years trying to induce CW Capital to strike a deal with the tenants. Uh, we had very little leverage. Uh, we had very few tools at our disposal because they didn't really have, well, they had, not really. They had no obligation to actually work with the tenants or the city. Despite the fact that we made a lot of demands in those days and we were very public in our advocacy for a seat at the table with CW Capital, um, they didn't actually have an obligation to work with us. Um, ultimately, we were able to, with the support of our uh, Senator Chuck Schumer and Congresswoman Carol Maloney, we were able to get Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to agree to not lend in any future transaction that didn't have the support of the tenants and the city, which really was the first bit of leverage that we had throughout all of this process that was meaningful. Uh, we had the ability to drive up the cost of borrowing for a new owner. And what's more, because we had made so much noise in the community, uh, we had created a situation where CW Capital realized that if they did not strike a deal with the tenants, uh, that they were possibly going to not deliver as good an outcome to the lenders because it was probably going to drive down the cost of the property. At the end of the day, um, CW Capital decided against putting the property up for another auction, like what MetLife had done. And we were pleased with that because we knew that another auction was just going to create the same outcome. But instead, they worked with the tenants and me, and the de Blasio administration, uh, and brought a, an investor in Blackstone that was willing 
to strike a deal with us that there was no obligation for anybody to do. Uh, so the, the fact that we were able through that negotiation and those years of advocacy to strike a, a deal of 5,000 affordable units for 20 years, which of course is almost the length of time of the initial deal that the city struck with MetLife back in 1943, uh, was itself a huge victory. Now, would we have liked that deal to have been longer? Yes. Would we like to, to have it cover more units? Yes. Uh, but in light of the fact that there was no obligation on anybody to actually do uh, a deal with the city and the tenants, we regarded that as an enormous victory uh, and one that was made possible only through our years of advocacy. And of course, we were pleased to have allies like the mayor and our senator and congresswoman to be able to help us drive that result. What happened to the proposal to convert apartments to condominiums? So the tenants for many years, including from 2006 on, uh, we had been pushing a plan to give tenants a chance to own their apartments. And we thought that that would do a couple of things. One, we thought it would you know, uh, alleviate burdens on residents who were uh, spending a lot of money on rent every month and might otherwise like to uh, own their units. Uh, two, we thought it would allow us the best route to maintaining long-term affordability because we wanted to create a limited equity scenario where somebody would invest amount of money in their apartment, uh, but there would be limits on how much money they could make and therefore would have to rent the, uh, sorry, sell the unit to another income qualified middle income New Yorker. And we thought that, that was a, a very sound way for us not only to generate funds for our uh, efforts, but also to preserve something in Stytown. What happened as we got past the crisis of 2008, 2009, 2010, was that the market started coming back. Uh, and CW Capital uh, was never super enthusiastic about our effort to create condominiums with tax limitations on uh, resale. Uh, but they also said, well, listen, maybe we'll do it in Peter Cooper Village, but not in Stuyvesant Town. And they were thinking about units that might sell for over a million dollars a piece. Now, of course, this was not what the tenants were after. This was not what I was after. Uh, we had wanted to create a structure that would allow people to have a you know, modest return and a guarantee of the community to be occupied by middle-income people for the next generation. Um, Mayor de Blasio was not super enthusiastic about a home ownership plan either. So when we saw the dynamic that was at play, both the uh, expectation of what those apartments would cost from a seller's perspective, uh, the lack of political support for the matter, uh, and you know the, the, the dynamic at play where CW Capital was willing to split Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper Village down the middle and offer some things to some tenants, but other things to others, we thought that that was perhaps not any longer the best route for us. And so when we were exploring the long-term affordability of Stuytown, a rental option uh, was one that we felt uh, satisfied almost all of our goals, except for that, of course, the homeownership portion. 
So Blackstone has pledged to preserve affordable apartments. How important has Blackstone been in bringing this to a satisfactory conclusion? Well, they were really important, and their pledge was not just a pledge. Their pledge is uh, solidified through a legal document that is a regulatory agreement with the city of New York, uh, which is one that it does not matter if Blackstone stays or goes, that regulatory agreement runs with the property. Uh, so Blackstone, when they came to the table, they made it very clear that they were uh, they were there as a as a problem solver, and that if uh, they could satisfy our goals and desires, they were interested. But if they could not, they were not. Um, that was the sort of partner that the tenants uh, had been looking for for years. In fact, we had partnered uh, with Brookfield a number of years earlier, another giant in the industry, because they were willing to work with us on the terms that we had set out uh, to try to help us uh, get CW Capital to move in, in our favor. There's not that many players out there to, that can really come to the table and be able to consummate a deal like Stuyvesant Town uh, on the first day. So Blackstone, when they came and they came in partnership with CW Capital and they came with a willingness to negotiate with the city and the tenants, uh, that was very important. It was mission critical because, again, there was very little obligation for anybody to actually do that. So when we had a real player at the table willing to negotiate with us uh, and to deliver something that we thought, you know, listen, it was a negotiation. We pushed them, uh, but we got what we thought was a very, very uh, healthy outcome for tenants and for the city. But Blackstone, as a player, uh, was very important. They were willing to have that conversation with us, and uh, we couldn't have done it without them. And Blackstone says it wants to own Stytown and Peter Cooper Village as long as MetLife did, which would be over a half century. But is it your goal for the tenants to wind up purchasing Stuyvesant Town, Peter Cooper Village? So in, in my mind, uh, there, there are two things here. One is, I think it's great news, and we always thought it was great news that Blackstone had used a more stable and more patient investment fund to buy Stytown and Peter Cooper with Ivanhoe Cambridge. Uh, they did it uh, because, you know, they had raised this, raised a fund that was not looking to get uh, pie, in the sty, pie in the sky returns. And they had bought the property in a way that was not overly leveraged. It was not done the way Tishman Spire had done, where they put down a billion and then they borrowed $4.4 billion. It was done in which it was a 50-50 uh, scenario. Um, but in terms of your question about tenants owning uh, the property into the long term, um, yes, I think that that would be a great and very satisfying outcome if the residents were able uh, to become homeowners in Stuyvesant Town. Uh, but that's something that, you know, future leaders of the community are going to have to work out with Blackstone or with a future owner uh, at the right moment. Uh, but I continue to believe that that is a very interesting opportunity uh, for people to not only, uh, you know, own their units, but also to preserve something in Stuyvesant Town for the, for the longer term. So it may happen at the end of the 20 years, maybe it'll happen some point sooner, but that conversation could, should continue to be live uh, because it's something that I think is, is in the interest of residents and also in the interest of the owner and in the interest of the city. It has a confluence of all of those dynamics. In just uh, the few minutes that we have left, I think we have about two, uh, I want to talk a bit about you. Why did you pull out of the race for city controller? 
You know, when I was uh, when I was considering that race, um, I wasn't sure whether that was going to be the move for me or to run for speaker of the city council. Um, you know, I decided that looking at the race for speaker of the city council, of course, which was not a successful one, was the better move for me uh, and uh, allowed me to make a case to my colleagues that uh, uh, I should be the leader of that uh, of that branch of government. Um, so it was a it was a tough tough question, but I you know was looking at two two options there and decided that running to be the speaker of the council was uh, the the better option for me at that moment. Well, although most of your life has been spent living and representing Manhattan's uh, east side, should I be surprised that you now run the Riverside Park Conservancy, which helps maintain Riverside Park and and does that include the the newest portions that were created as part of restraining Donald Trump? Yes, um, you should be surprised, perhaps uh, in part, because I've spent so much time advocating for uh, for the east side of Manhattan. And yes, it does include the area that is the uh, the you know that was created as uh, through the the deal with uh, with Donald Trump between uh, 59th and 72nd Street. We cover the area from 59th to 181st Street on the west side, so six miles of parkland. But what you should not be surprised about is. That you know, this is a another way to do public service. Uh, running a not-for-profit organization that's mission is to improve uh, New York City and New York City life. That is uh, what I have done now for uh, many years, and it is what I am motivated to do. And so, from that perspective, it's less of a surprise. But yeah, you know, flipping uh, flipping sides of Manhattan and uh, you know uh, and looking after um, a a park on the other side, yeah, that might look uh, that might look a little surprising to some. Thank you so much for being on our show. Daniel R. Gorodnik served for 12 years as a city council member from the east side of Manhattan. In addition, he's worked as a civil rights attorney and he's now president and CEO of Riverside Park Conservancy. Uh, we've been discussing his book, Saving Stuyvesant Town, How One Community Defeated the Worst Real Estate Deal in History, published by Three Hills. Thank you again. Thanks for having me. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you'd like to hear more about one-hour in-depth interviews, you can access any of our over 500 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take just a minute to ask you to support the station. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to step up by making a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online right now to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to help keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Remember that WBI is sponsored 100% by listener donations, so if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate and Largerty, or even if you've just discovered us, why not step up right now by going to that website, give to WBAI.org, or by calling 212-209-2950 to keep this show and this historic station that brings it to you, the only one on New York Radio that's entirely listener-sponsored on the air. To everyone who's already supporting the station in the name of Leonard Lopez at large, thank you. 
Uh, I hope you can join us tomorrow when investigative journalist and regular contributor to our show, Bob Henley, will discuss the most important news of the month that you haven't heard about. We'll see you then.